0: I know that some of us will be going off to college soon. And so if you take a a college religion class, you're going to hear something like this. Religion is man's invention to cope with the fear of nature. Religion is something man invented to cope with the fear of nature. And so this theory about the origin of religion was started, was really popularized by a guy you've probably heard of, the father of psychiatry, Sigmund Freud. He said in his book, the Future, the, the Future of Illusion, he said this, the biggest problem that we all face is the fear of death, that we're all going to die. And so he said, death, of course, stalks us in this world. Everywhere we turn, we're faced with the potential threat of death. Nature is red in tooth and claw. So we look around, what do we see? We see winds, we see waves, we see lightning, we see storms, we see floods, droughts. Avalanches, earthquakes, fire, heat, germs, viruses, epidemics. We're surrounded by the threat of death. And so according to Freud, what we do is we cope with this fear of nature by doing two things. First, this impersonal threat of nature. We personalize it. Then we sacralize it, meaning we, we, we ascribe deity or religion to it. So, for example, If you are afraid of the ocean, what do you do? You create a a sea god called Poseidon or Neptune. You do sacrifices to that false god in order to help you get on the boat without being afraid. So that's his theory, right? In other words, kids, if if you're not paying attention, what Freud is saying is we invent God and religion to help us deal with scary things in nature. That's his thesis. Now... This morning, the interesting thing is when we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 8 this morning, we find something interesting. The passage we're looking at this morning in Luke chapter 8 contradicts the entire theory that Freud is trying to to propagate. It utterly contradicts it. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 35. Luke chapter 8. Verses 22 to 35. If you're using the pew Bible, you can find this on page 865. Let's listen to this short but powerful passage about the might of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what scripture says. One day he, that is Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, Where's your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. My prayer for each one of us is that we'll worship and trust the lord jesus christ the one who is mighty to save even those who are perishing that's my prayer so let's start before we look at before we look at this let's just set the context i've said this before you take a text out of context all you're left with is what a con so according to our text what do, what do we have jesus what has he been doing jesus has been teaching in parables on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Great crowds, Luke tells us, have come out to hear him preach the word of God. We're told in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, um, we're told that the crowds were pressing in on him. Mark tells us that the crowds were so great that Jesus actually got into a boat off the shoreline, kind of a floating pulpit because there were so many people pressing in. Now, Mark also tells us that evening came. So after preaching and teaching all day long, evening comes and then we're told in our passage that it was time for Jesus to go. Mark also tells us a really important point. It was nighttime. It was in the evening. So it's evening and Jesus says, let's go. Verse 22, he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. So picture it in your mind, Jesus and his followers, they're in a, in a fishing boat. They're going from the western shore of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern shore. Now, the Sea of Galilee, as we've said before, is not a sea per se. It's just a big lake. Luke calls us and, and tells us in chapter five, it's the Lake of Gennesaret, Lake Gennesaret. It's about 682 feet below sea level. It's shaped like a basin. It's 13 miles long, 8 miles across. And so they're going from the the, the western side where there are hills to the eastern side where there are more, more mountains. Now, you know if you've read the Bible and especially the Gospels that this particular body of water was subject to intense storms. The shape and location of it made it Really susceptible to intense wind storms. You've got air coming off the, the Mediterranean Sea, goes down. You've got warmer air down on the lake, and these clash, and you've got violent storms that come seemingly out of nowhere. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's on a boat with his disciples, crossing this temperamental body of water at nighttime. Verse 23. And as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. He's tired. He's been preaching the word of God all day long. So he dozes off. Jesus takes a nap. Now, Peter and Andrew and James and John were all fishermen. So knowing that they're at the helm, it's easy to go to sleep, right? These are fishermen. They know this water. They probably know the Sea of Galilee like the the back of their hands. They're familiar with this Lake, they're really good sailors. And so Jesus rests. Mark tells us one little detail that I love. He was asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion. So that's the picture. And then seemingly out of nowhere, that's when the storm hit. Verse 23. And a windstorm. Your Bible may say a fierce or a violent Squall. Now, children, we don't use the word squall, but that just, it's, it's just a really crazy storm. A, 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 a windstorm, a violent squall came down on the lake and they were filling with water. Your Bible may say the boats were being swamped with water. Mark tells us in his account of this, the waves were breaking into the boat. Now, this storm is referred to different ways by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark calls it a great windstorm. Matthew actually uses a word that's used outside the New Testament to refer to a hurricane. He actually uses a word that can also be rendered as earthquake. So I want you to picture this is this isn't some small little wave. This is like an earthquake on water. This is this is a powerful storm. This is intense. This is a mega storm. This is an all hands on deck kind of a storm. Waves are breaking over the side of the boat. It's filling up with water. And notice the fishermen, the expert fishermen are a little worried. That's always a bad sign. If you're ever out with fishermen and they get worried, you're in trouble, right? They'd been out on the Sea of Galilee. They knew knew these, these storms, but they'd never seen one like this one. Verse 23, we're told they were in danger. Do you see that? So don't look at me, look at your Bibles. Verse 23, they were in peril. They're in danger. This is a bad storm. They're in serious trouble. They're desperate. And remember, brothers and sisters, all this is happening at night. It's even scarier. You can't see where the waves are coming from. Winds howling, waves crashing, boat filling. Fishermen screaming, darkness all around. Meanwhile, Jesus sleeping. Now you you've heard that phrase before—the calm before the storm. This is like calm within the storm. It's amazing to me. The only time we're ever told in the Gospels that Jesus slept is in the middle of a mini hurricane. He's sleeping. And so, verse 24, what do they do? They went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. In other words, we're going to die. We're, we're about to drown. Matthew tells us they also cried out, Save us, Lord. We're perishing. Now, have you ever been on a flight, maybe that had a lot of turbulence, and it's pretty intense, and you're starting to grip the, your chair railings or whatever? And there's always that one person on the flight who's just sleeping through all of it. You ever seen? It's super annoying, isn't it? They're just plane is shaking, you know, everything's falling and then they're just dozed off. Right. It's kind of annoying. Well, it's it's interesting that the disciples here, they're not just scared. They're also annoyed at Jesus. How do we know this? Well, we're told in Mark chapter four, verse 38, they also cry out, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you hear that? That annoyance? Wake up. Don't you care what's happening to us? The disciples interpret Christ's nap in the storm to be an indication of his cruel indifference Of the trial they're going through. Now, the longer you consider that question, the more profound that answer becomes. Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus Christ came into the world to rescue the perishing. Jesus understands what it means to rescue the perishing infinitely more than these disciples. Now, children, when you you think about a storm on a a boat in the middle of a storm and someone's sleeping, you should think of an Old Testament passage that you know very well. You think of any passage in the Old Testament where someone's asleep in a boat during a storm. Remember the book of Jonah? Remember Jonah is out, he goes down, he's asleep. The storm happens, the sailors get worried, they wake Jonah up. They say, what's going on, buddy? Where are you running from? And he spills the beans. He tells him what he's doing. And shortly thereafter, Jonah's praying, right? They they actually tell him, you need to pray to your God. Maybe this will stop. But what happens here in this passage indicates that there's someone far greater than Jonah who's here. Because when they wake Jesus up, he doesn't pray. He doesn't say, oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, stop this storm. Jesus doesn't do what Jonah does. He just speaks to the storm directly. Verse 24. And he awoke and rebuked the wind. And the raging waves. And they ceased. And there was a calm. Mark tells us that he said to the storm. Peace. Be still. Jesus rebuked the surging wind and the raging waves, and they simply ceased. They just went still. It's like an adult speaking to a puppy. Hush down now. Hush down. Be still. Lay down. That's what Jesus says to the storm. This mega storm was was immediately transformed into a mega calm with just one word from the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice Luke tells us Jesus rebuked the winds. you see that? If you've read Luke's gospel carefully, Jesus has used that same word earlier in the gospel. He rebuked an unclean spirit and it departed. He rebuked a fever. And here the Son of God is rebuking creation itself. Raging winds... Are stopped, 10,000 gallons of water immediately are calmed. And the Sea of Galilee is as smooth as crystal. There isn't a zephyr in the air. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Matthew adds, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Now I wonder, how do you hear those words from Jesus? Do you hear Jesus saying to his disciples, "Where's your faith?" in a kind of scolding tone? Maybe solemn rebuke. Is that how you hear those words? I don't, I don't think so. Jesus saved His rebuke for the winds and the waves. I think Jesus is saying, just like a parent would say to a small child, "Why are you so scared? Don't you trust me? Where's your faith?" Now, brother says, "I don't know about you. I, I'm glad that Jesus is utterly patient with disciples who just don't get it." Amen. You can actually say, "Amen" or "Amen." amen. Aren't you you thankful? I mean, when you read through the Gospels, who who is more slow to get it than the disciples? And yet we ourselves are so slow to get it. They've been with Jesus. They saw Jesus. And yet they're just so prone to just not get it. And yet Jesus, He's merciful. He's patient with those who are slow to get it. And so I think even this morning, Jesus is saying to us, don't you trust me? Now, here comes here comes the surprise. I know you're wondering, are we ever going to get back to Dr. Sigmund Freud? Here it is. Here it is. Here comes a surprise for us and for Dr. Freud. Now, I want you to just this is amazing. Notice the response of the disciples at this point. Notice their reaction. Put yourself in their sandals what would you expect their, their response to be? If you had been in the boat, what would, you, would you, your response would be probably elation or joy or gratitude. Look at verse 25. And they were afraid. They were fearful and they marveled. Mark tells us they were filled with mega fear. Great fear. Follow the train of thought here. The disciples had been afraid of the storm. Jesus displays his power by calming the storm. But once the storm was gone, instead of everybody high-fiving, slapping Jesus on the back, thanking Jesus, that's not what happens. The Bible says clearly that immediately after the deadly threat of nature was removed by Jesus, instead of eliminating their fear, their fear increased. They were more afraid after the storm than during the storm. In the power of Christ, the disciples met something far more frightening than anything they had met In nature, they don't respond with joy. They don't respond with thanks. They respond with dread, with fear. Their fears were increased. And you ask, why were they afraid? They were afraid because of Jesus. One can only wonder what Freud would say to that. Why would we invent a God more terrifying than the nature we hope he will protect us from? The storm was frightening, but they weren't afraid of the storm anymore. I heard John MacArthur once say, the only thing more terrifying than having a storm outside your boat is having God in your boat. That's exactly what's happening here. Verse 25. And they began saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. I love the way Matthew records this same question. The slightly different nuance. Matthew 8, 27. What? Manner of man is this? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Listen to to this comment by R.C. Sproul. And if you've ever read The Holiness of God, you'll you'll be familiar with this. R.C. Sproul said about this verse, quote, the disciples were looking for a category to put Jesus in. But they had no category for him. He was in a class by himself. He was a complete foreigner. They had met all different kinds of men before. Tall men, short men, skinny men, fat men, smart men, stupid men. They had met Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Egyptians, Samaritans and fellow Jews. But they had never met any man who could speak to winds and waves and have them obey him. And then Sproul writes, he was the supreme, mysterious stranger. You see, brothers and sisters, what happened on the sea that day or that night? The disciples found themselves once again in the presence of the holy. They found themselves in the presence of. Of one who has no category, one who is in a class by himself, one who is utterly transcendent. Peter got a taste of this earlier. Remember when we studied about his fishing expedition with Jesus? Remember that? Nothing, no catch all day. Jesus says, hey, Peter, throw your nets over on that side. And Peter's like, well, we've been doing this all day, but you are the Lord. So he throws the nets over there and every fish in the Sea of Galilee jumped in those nets. And instead of celebrating, instead of rejoicing that he can retire now with all this fish that he caught. Peter doesn't respond like that. Peter falls down at Jesus's feet. And says, Depart from me, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. You see, Peter suddenly found himself in the presence of the Holy One. Next week, we'll be looking at a passage in Luke where Jesus comes across a man who's infested with demons. And they recognize Jesus right when they see him coming. And what do they do? They scream. And they beg him to be sent someplace else. They recognize him as the Holy One. Who is this? That's the question. Who is this? That's the very answer Luke's gospel was written. That's the very question Luke's gospel was written to answer. Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ The Messiah, the son of God. He is the holy one of Israel. He's more than a holy man. He is the one who is holy, holy, holy. The disciples were terrified in part because what they just saw Jesus do, they knew from their Old Testament is something only God could do. I want you to listen. If you're, I don't know if you write in your Bibles. You don't have to do this in the Pew Bible. But if you write in your Bibles, out next to this passage, write this verse. Psalm 107, verses 23 and following. Listen to this passage in Psalm 107. It's like a commentary on our passage. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Psalm 89, 8 says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? You rule the raging of the sea and when its waves rise, you still them. You see, only the creator God can do what Jesus is doing in this passage. He demonstrates once again that he is this creator God in the flesh. So that's what happens in this passage. What are we supposed to draw from this as a church, as followers of Christ? What are the implications for us for greater faithfulness to our Lord? First, I just want to point out, this this was an intense defining trial in the life of the disciples. It's it's interesting that all Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this event. This was an intense trial for them, this storm on the sea. And it's interesting to me also that the Bible speaks of trials throughout the Bible in reference to watery storms. So for example, Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck Let the floods not sweep over me. Let the deep not swallow me up. Trials often come at us out of nowhere. And so this trial of the disciples, what can we learn from their trial to help us walk through our trials? Just this week, financial hardship, loss of a job, unfavorable diagnosis, Chronic illness, addictions, painful relational issues with a boss, loved ones who are dying. These are just a handful of the trials of folks in this congregation. But there's three things that we can draw from this passage to help each one of us, no matter what trial we're going through this morning first Jesus keeps his word in your trials so trust him Jesus keeps his word in your trials so trust him this passage reminds us that Jesus always keeps his word You say, where am I getting that? Look at the first verse. Jesus said, let us go across to what? You know, I got to wake up now. Let us go across to what? The other side. You see that? It was Jesus's idea to take this trip. And Jesus said, we're heading across to the other side. And so when he says this, the disciples should trust him that they're going to reach their destination safely and soundly. Jesus had just taught in the parable of the sower that the good soil is the soil is the heart that receives God's word, holds fast to it in a good and honest heart, and bears fruit with patience or perseverance. He just said that. And yet, what do we find the disciples doing right here? They hear this word from Jesus But as soon as their trial comes, they fall apart. They forget what he said. As soon as the storm started raging, they forgot his word. And like I said earlier, I can relate to this. Trials are disorienting. And so this is a reminder to us that as a church when we are coming alongside those in our congregation who are going through trials of various kinds, we need to be reminding one another of the faithfulness of our God. We need to remind one another that he will fulfill his promises to us. We need to remind one another that he's good and that we can trust him. When things are going well, trusting God seems easy. and says we need help. When trials come, we start flailing about. We despise God's promises. We even say things like, God, do you even care about me? is that amazing? Do you, do you care? That's exactly what the disciples were saying here. One of my favorite verses this week in 2 Peter 2, we're told that the Lord knows. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Isn't that a sweet, sweet verse? The Lord knows. He knows how to rescue you from your trials. Will you trust him? This passage reminds us that even when our faith is fragile, We have a merciful and glorious Savior who is able and willing to save and to deliver his disciples whose faith is faulty. This week, the last time I got to spend with Connie Beatty, right before she passed, we were quoting Psalm 23 together. And what was she doing on her deathbed? She's reminding herself that she has a good shepherd. A shepherd who will walk with her through the valley of the shadow of death. A shepherd who promises that his goodness and mercy will follow her all the days of her life. And he did that. And she's dwelling with him. He came through. And So brothers and sisters, we need to remind ourselves when we're facing the loss of a job, when we're facing the ridicule of coworkers, when we're facing even death itself. We need to remind ourselves what the scripture says. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord, our God and rely On his God. That's the first instruction from this passage. You can trust Jesus to keep his word even in the storm. Second, Jesus is mightier than your trials. So glorify him. Jesus is mightier than your trials. So glorify him. Sometimes we only think of Jesus as being gentle and lowly, and he, by God's grace, is gentle and lowly. He is. But this passage reminds us that Jesus Christ is omnipotent. He has not just might. He is almighty. He has all power in his hand. He has all Right before he ascended, what did he say? All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. This is the one who's with us in our trials. Whatever trial we're facing, Jesus is mightier than that trial. Jesus is the son of the living God. He's the holy one of Israel. He's the one in whom, by whom and for whom are all things. He orders all of our trials. And he brings those trials into our life to display his power that's made perfect in our weakness. And so your present trial, Christian, he didn't take Jesus by surprise. You may have been caught off by surprise, but not Jesus. So what do we do? Psalm 50 verse 15 says this, says, call upon me, the Lord says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So in this passage, what the disciples should have done after Jesus rescued them is give him glory. And that's what we that's what we want to do, even in the midst of trials. One of the best ways to do this, brothers and sisters, is. Find a hymnal, either take the one in the pews. Now, Larry's going to get mad for me saying that. But if you don't want to take the hymnal there, find a hymnal and find old hymns that talk about trials. Because sometimes I have found it to be the best way to glorify God when you're going through a trial is to find words that someone else has written that you can sing. So brothers and sisters, This passage was written so that you might worship and adore him even in your trials. And the way we remind ourselves of that is looking at his omnipotence. One of my favorite dead guys, J.C. Ryle, um, he wrote this one time talking about this passage. Quote, faith never rests so calmly and so peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Christian, when you go to bed tonight, lay your head on God's omnipotence. Even for friends and family who don't know the Lord, His omnipotence is an encouragement to us. Even when we are far from Him, His omnipotence is never far from us. So in the most desperate Of situations, Jesus is mighty to save. He's mighty to save those who are perishing. Nothing is too hard for him. There's no sin too wicked to be pardoned. There's no heart that's too hard that he can't change. There's no promise that he's made that's too great to be fulfilled. There's no prayer that you can out ask his omnipotence. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. You can't ask. You can't out ask Jesus. He is able and willing to hear you. And if you're trusting in him this morning, this omnipotent power is on your side in Christ. All of his attributes, all of God's attributes are on your side in Christ. So glorify him, Christian, in your trials. Thirdly and finally, Jesus is truly God and truly man in your trials. So draw near to him. Jesus is truly God and truly man in your trials. So draw near to him. In this passage, we see the humanity and the deity of Christ, don't we? We see him calming the storm with almighty power, but we also see him sleeping. And it's a picture for us of our perfect and sympathetic Savior, that we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize us with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted like we are in all things, yet without sin, we have a Savior Who is truly God and truly man. The one mediator between God and man. Who invites us to draw near to himself. At the conclusion of Luke's gospel. We see this same Jesus. The God man. Enduring another kind of storm. We see him on the cross. The one who is almighty is crucified in weakness. The one who is holy, the holy one of Israel. Hanging between two criminals on a Roman cross. We see the one who is holy, holy, holy. Bearing the curse. For unholy sinners. On the cross, we see the one who is truly God and truly man. And in the most desperate of situations, proving once and for all that he and he alone can save and rescue those who are perishing. On the cross, we see the author of life die. He dies the death that we deserved because of our sin and rebellion. He knowingly went to the cross and took upon Himself the storm of God's infinite wrath. And He accepted it. He exhausted it on the cross, bearing our sins in His body on the tree. For anyone who would turn to Him, who'd receive Him in the empty hands of faith, who would cry out to him for salvation. God, be merciful to me. A sinner on the cross, we see the one crowned with glory and honor, crowned with thorns. And then three days later, what we see is after sleeping the sleep of death, Jesus rose again from the dead, just like he said he would. He rose to save. And as the exalted Savior, He offers life and forgiveness and grace to anyone who trusts in Him. And for those of us who have received Him, Jesus Christ, He not only gives us new life, He not only forgives us of all of our sins, He not only calls us together to be a part of His people, He not only gives us strength. He not only dearly bears us up, he does something even more amazing. He puts a new song in our mouths Amen. that we can sing along the way. What are the words to that song? He sent from on high and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. Because he delighted in me. Is this your song? Is this your savior? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father. What a gift that you have given. In giving us your son. He who did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously with him give us all things. Lord you've given us everything. In giving us Jesus. By your spirit help us to prize him. To trust him. To adore him to serve Him, to glorify Him until that day we see Him face to face. We ask this in His name and for His glory. Amen.